Hey, this is Ryan. Welcome to Touch Podcast. Yes, I am whispering because this is a fantastic episode recorded at Wild Goose and where we're talking about men and purity culture and masculinity. But the audio is a little light, so I'm whispering. So you can turn up your radio, turn up your volume. Oh yeah, you're going to enjoy this. Thank you so much. Then we don't have to redo it. So, hey guys, this is Nate. This is Ryan. And this is Touch Podcast. This time we're be we're broadcasting from the Wild Goose Festival. <laughs> hey, what 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 sounds do geese make? What do geese goose sound really quick? I don't know. <laughs> 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 like the wings of the goose. Yep. They all sound like geese to me. They're all geese to me. Um, and as we talk about purity culture, we're gonna kind of a, a, approach this in two halves. We're discussing masculinity, and we're discussing masculinity. Pre-purity culture, right? Well, I mean, actually, during In, purity culture. Yep. Um, and then what masculinity looks like now on this side of hashtag me too, this side of purity culture, um, this side of uh, deconstructionist Christianity. And, um, and when we do do this, I'm going to ask Ryan a couple of questions about his backstory. He's going to ask a couple of questions about mine because we both have two halves of the puzzle here. And, um, and, of course, you have your halves, too, to contribute. So Excellent. Yeah. Can, can I start by telling about you? Tell me. Tell me about me. Let me tell you about my buddy, Ryan Clark. So my buddy, Ryan Clark, what I noticed about him uh, is that, well, especially on the other side of my marriage, I discovered that my buddy, Ryan Clark, he has this unusual way of already feeling comfortable with women. How did he already feel comfortable with women? And not only that, uh, we both started off in um, Southern Baptist um, spaces. Um, so we had a, a more narrow view of, of the world, and he he had a wider view of the world that I I just did not know how he got there. So when I reconnected with him 20 years later, um, one of my best buddies, who I you know who I thought I knew like the back of my own hand, had has naturally evolved into uh, what a holistic Christian man looks like now more than I was. Um, and so when he started learning about purity culture through his lens, um, which is a really fascinating story, uh, it really put into perspective the space where he could fill in the gap and provide wisdom and guidance in a way that he didn't think he had until he started hearing from a bunch of men who suffered from the same purity culture wound. Okay. Thank you, Nate. That was a very generous yeah. intro introduction. I was very honest because I love him very much. He's very comfortable around women. Raised by a pack of women. <laughs> so my wife and I are a lot of like a lot of Southern Baptists who grew up and came through the youth group in the 90s, went to college in the 90s. We did True Love Waits. We signed the pledge card. Our pledge card got s sent off and nailed uh, on a little stake in front of the on the Washington Mall. We pledged not to have sex until we were married, and. My wife and I did not have penile vaginal intercourse until we got married. Like, we got it very technical, right? Until we got married, and we were s just the sweetest Christian couple. Uh, we were going to seminary together. We were going to be missionaries together. And we get married, big, beautiful First Baptist Church wedding, and the bubbles, and it's just, it's completely lovely. We get on the other side of marriage, and sex is not working. 
and it's like the magic pixie dust that was supposed to come down during the wedding ceremony, it like got blew away by a Florida storm or something because we were like, we got into this situation where it was just like, we were, we're all hot and heavy right up into until the marriage, like barely holding on to a thread to our frigidities, right? And, but then like something, this switch that was supposed to flip did not flip. And so it, through a number of years and through therapy and doing men's groups and working with other men and other women had to go through this process of like what happened and then to discover that it was happening to a lot of people. So um, we're gonna fa- I'm going to fast forward a little bit to talk about some of the things that we discovered that happened um, within purity culture that happened to us that happened to a lot of other guys, a, a lot of other people. But before I say that, I want to first say that purity culture disproportionately harmed women, that women bore the brunt of the shame and the, and the, the enforcement of purity culture in youth group and in college groups. And so we, we have talked a lot about that on our podcast. And so we're skipping, we're not skipping that, but we're taking up on a section of this conversation that starts with, while it was disproportionately harmful to women, boys and men were also harmed by purity culture. And so and I'll, I'm going to go through a couple of those things that we've noticed, that we've done some reflecting on and talking with other people. And one of them is that in our, in our church tradition, we're singing praise songs, and all those praise songs have to do with filling ourselves with more Jesus. And the perspective was we are these terrible sinners who have these terrible thoughts and do these terrible things. And in order not to do them, we have to fill ourselves with Jesus and more Jesus and more Jesus all the time. And what, what happened was that that taught everyone, including men, that we were not enough. We simply, in and of ourselves and even in our community, unless we had something constantly pouring inside of us to make us good, we couldn't make good decisions. And so that w- that's the first thing I want to point out, that, that really this message that got put into our unconscious minds and into our unconscious minds is that we are not good enough, no matter what, really. And we knew that we are not uh, having enough Jesus poured into us because we were horny all the time. <laughs> and if, if we had enough Jesus in us, we wouldn't be horny all the time, right? We wouldn't be tempted to look at a woman's cleavage or be getting random erections in math class. Um, so we knew that we must be really, really bad because of how our bodies reacted. The second thing was that it it was implied, if it wasn't implied, it was said explicitly that women were responsible for enforcing our sexual boundaries. That men would probably, even good Christian guys like us who are reading our Bibles every day, having our quiet times, we still would go as far as we could go until the girl said stop. Right? It's this cosmic game of sexual chicken every single time we make out with girls. Not every single time. I'm being a little hyperbolic, but not very hyperbolic there. (laughs) And that was situated in a context where the only kind of sex we talked about, the only kind of sexuality we talked about was at at some point we might get to have, we should get to have as our reward, penile vaginal, vagina (laughs) intercourse, (laughs) vaginal intercourse, it's my favorite. Um, and that, and that was the norm, right? That was the only thing that was talked about, talked about. And unfortunately it was talked about as the reward. 
if we were good Christians, if we were good, good guys, our reward for good behavior was intercourse. And so that we didn't talk that explicitly, right, in youth group and in college group, but that was what was running. That's sort of the software that was running in the background. And then the last one, and this is um, uh, a page out of uh, Jesus and John Wayne, a really fantastic book, and that is that masculinity was based in a warrior model, right? The, the more powerful we could, be, could become, the more conversations we can dominate, the more strength that we can exert in our environment, the more manly we are. Okay, so that's sort of the context to get everybody into the context. And then I want you to be thinking about the thing I didn't just mention, and when my alarm goes off and we switch roles, we want, we want you to say the thing, oh, yeah, you didn't mention this. This was a big thing, <laughs> and that's just one of our blind spots. Okay, so I go, I get, we both get married, we're in each other's weddings, and we're, I'm like having this trouble, like, uh, sex is not working, we don't understand, it was going to be fine. Nate's like, yeah, we were hot and heavy, and sex is not working for us. And then we fast forward, I'm still married, this is a very long story that I'm getting really to the sort of the more recent last five years about, and then Nate, Nathan and his wife end up separating. This is, it's not a relationship that's going to work, it's not a relationship that, uh, as a married couple, they're actually great friends now. And then I went on my journey to heal from purity culture, my wife and I both, and Nate went on his journey to heal from purity culture. But I was living in Georgia, and Nate is living in L.A., and I have access to some resources, and Nate had access to completely different resources. And so I think it, uh, it's helpful for this community probably to hear some of the non-traditional ways that Nate went about exploring his own sexuality, his own masculinity, that might not be sort of what we do in the southeast. Is that mm. a good? That's a, get great, a good. That's a great yeah. introduction. And Nate has had Thank a career you. in filmmaking and editing uh, docu series and reality TV shows in Los Angeles. He now live lives in an intentional living community and healing community in Hawaii. Yes, yeah, this is that? true. That was that was excellent. I'm gonna take a breath now. <sighs> As Ryan takes a breath, I'll pick up where he left off. So, uh, in in my marriage with my ex-wife, um, we were, but we both found ourselves in a 15-year-long sexless marriage. Um, and so the number of times we were intimate is less than the number of fingers uh, on both hands. Uh, we never have any kids for that reason. And by the time that uh, we parted ways, I discovered that I had a clinical fear of sex in women. I wonder why. Maybe because the way I was taught about it religiously. Maybe. So, um, but this is where I entered the conversation. This is where I entered my healing space. How can I confront this fear that I have, this deep spiritual religious fear of sexual women? How can I confront that and have like a normal life? I had no idea, no clue. The only instrument I had to use was my camera. Because I was editing on docu-series shows, I'm often in an edit bay all the time without other people, but just looking at footage, learning through the footage. So I went on a personal quest to use my camera to confront my shame, to confront my fear. And as soon as my camera is up, something happens. When it's behind the camera, I think I'm, it's like an ostrich putting his head in the ground. He thinks he disappears. When I'm behind the camera, I think I disappear. So I started confronting sexuality in three ways. One, I started to deconstruct how I was taught, it, taught sexuality in church. Two, I confronted my curiosity fear, confusion with pornography. And three, I also went into Tantra. 
I went into Tantra to kind of, I, I needed another, from, from a theolo as a theologian, I had to hold on and to another theology just to have orientation, right? So the things I'm going to share with you come from those experiences. Maybe I'll sprinkle in a little story. Um, but they are in response to the things that Ryan mentioned in regards to masculinity during purity culture. So for those of, uh, those of us who like to take notes, um, <laughs> one of the first things he mentioned uh, was that with sexuality, that men tend to start with this idea that we are um, in a deficit, that we, we enter this world at a deficit, needing something from Christ, needing something from church, and until then, um, we are not enough, right? Um, and what I learned through some of my experiences is another divine narrative, that we are created in Christ's image, that we are created in God's image, that we are perfect as we are. And it's a completely different concept than starting off with a deficit. It's starting off with being divine. And my mind just short-circuited. How does this happen? How does this work? The only evidence I found was when I used my camera to shoot an interview with two people just to discuss sexuality. That's all I wanted because that's all I could handle. Um, when I had that invitation, uh, what resulted was a little bit more than that. And I found that Behind my camera, I was able to worship that experience. Without touching anybody, with, with, with being completely safe, I was able to behold intimacy in front of my camera. And after that happens, I felt, I noticed my camera shots were not shaky, like I was clinically afraid. They were smooth. I noticed that I had a desire to edit with that footage, not to turn away. And so I edited a short film. Um, one of the short films I've done has won, a f has won a film festival. I also brought an example of an art museum book that I created and a graphic novel I'm playing with just to create with this, with this mysterious content that I thought was going to be sinful, but it's opening me up creatively. It's starting to encourage my conversation with God, and it's giving me a new way to hold sexuality. And that was with a reverent, worshipful worshipful um, attitude. So as men, a lot of us men, we may start off with a confusion of how to hold sexuality, but we are, what's modeled to us is how to be spiritual. So a suggestion that I make is that perhaps if we approached sexuality with spiritual reverence, perhaps if we looked at our sisters, our mothers, and our, even our daughters as they're blossoming as, as creatures from God who one, not only have a clitoris so that they have a lot more data in regards to what pleasure is, but two, they have a womb. They have this internal understanding of death, life, and rebirth inside them that men do not have. So if physiologically, physiologically speaking, if men do not hold the same amount of that data that women hold, maybe there's a lot that we can learn from them in the spiritual space of sexuality. And so that's the, the flip side of what Ryan brought to the table of us starting off as with a deficit in purity culture, but now post-purity, we start off as divine. Does and that make sense? And that's revolutionary in, in our context and particularly in Nate's context because Nate was hyper-involved in a very popular church. If I said the name of the pastor, you would know this pastor immediately. And, uh, and the message of the church when he and his wife were having trouble was just try harder. I mean, there was lots of little techniques involved in that, but it was just try harder. And books, and, lots of books. And all the teachers of that church were men. And so the message was coming from men. The message was centered in masculine, in that kind of masculinity. 
and it was, you know, you're not working hard enough. There must, you know, it's your fault because this thing is not happening like the way we say it's supposed. To, your relationship's not hap not progressing the way it's supposed to because there must be something wrong with you, and you're not Christian enough. You're not spiritual enough. You don't have enough Jesus pouring inside of you. So I'll say, I just uh, in thinking about that story is that so in in a sort of Nate has talked about in the past about how that message, he decided that message was invalid, but so there has to be a way cause to, to learn and to grow and to heal. And so he went, moved toward looking at alternative forms of healing that were predominantly women-led. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And to, and to tee that off, um, I mentioned, you know, the three spaces I went to with my camera was our church background, uh, the world of pornography, and, and, and Tantra, right? So with our taking out our church background, what, when Ryan and I revisited our roots in Nashville um, as, um, I mean, I'm, I think you say this, you know, we were both hired by the Southern Baptist Convention to work in the youth, in youth ministries. Um, so we went back there. We reconnected with some of our, fr our friends. And we wanted to know what healing was looking like for men. And what we've discovered in our research is that the best spaces that have the most direct responses to purity culture are churches who are pastored by women. We discovered churches pastored by women are having the best responses to purity culture so far. This is just our, our research, our opinion. Um, that includes uh, uh, one pastor is she's conducting a sex camp that is not only for their teenagers, but their parents are starting to ask too. Like, can we come too? Uh, they're not having sex at camp. They're just learning about sex. <laughs> Some of you guys are thinking. No. Some of you guys are thinking. No, there is a sign-up for a sex camp. It's right here. We'll pass it around later. <laughs> you can use a code name. It's fine. Um, do is there anything you want to add to that? Well, piece? and that, um, yeah, we can edit this out if we don't. What I'm about to say is a part of your story that you've said out loud before, but okay. I'm going to repeat it. But if you don't want it in the podcast, we'll just, like, okay. chop it right there. Okay. Um, so in leaving church, Nate, Nate experimented with a couple different ways of se in sexual healing communities in the Southern California. And the Tantra is the one that resonated. It was uh, a very holistic, um, and his experiences were led – by women and so I don't know if you'd like to tell a story maybe you should tell a story about your being drawn into that community and how it what you did with your body <laughs> <laughs> and how that created healing for you okay so this this question leads us into the space of Tantra okay um, so, so I'll just start framing it like this I, I first got introduced to it with an understanding of white Tantra and red Tantra White Tantra is, uh, it's more of a practice you do to connect with yourself. This requires a lot of meditation, a lot of breath work. It's the spiritual side of Tantra. It's like, it's like the spiritual side of Christ. Uh, and then there's Red Tantra, which is typically the westernized sexy Tantra. <laughs> this is the type <laughs> of Tantra that Sting does when I hold my orgasm for 10 days. If, if that's how Sting talks. Okay, I think it is. It sounds just like him to I me. Sound just like Sting. Yeah. But the red tantra is the the sexualized stuff, right? So what I'm referring to is white tantra. I'm referring to the stuff that I could handle because I couldn't handle the sex stuff yet. Um, I had a fear. So, um, but in going into the white tantra space, um, I had I f I found a teacher who 
who I felt I could trust. Um, it was a she, and um, I really do think that was important to me. I felt like there was more trust that I had to learn about sexuality as from a woman than a man. Um, and this may this may connect to some of us because uh, you know ninety percent of men who, well, let me let me rephrase ninety percent of men who go through uh, sexual abuse or molestation in their younger years, they never report it. They never do. Um, very, very few men have. So chances are um, I may be speaking about some backgrounds that some of us here share, but we just never thought about it. But some of us may have been um, compromised by other men, and we may not realize that has happened. And we find ourselves feeling more safety and learning from women, but at the same time, purity culture has shamed that interest in which we don't feel like we are safe around women ourselves. So we're kind of caught in this strange catch-22 of shame from religious shame and then from program shame from being uh, sexually compromised, right? So so I just want to articulate that is a very unique space that men have to break, you have to break out of, and sometimes it takes time. Um, but, but as a man who realized that um, my boundaries were compromised by a man when I was younger, that I, do, I did feel a maternal... Um, uh, safety with women, and when I learned about Tantra, um, I learned from a, um, a teacher in New York who, who was using an example in class, and this example in class was a yabyam exercise. Yabyam is, is a word, it's a term that stands for mother-father, and it's when um, uh, two people sit in front of each other, like Indian style, or maybe they can be sort of intertangled, whichever. But um, one side represents the masculine force, one side represents the feminine force. And then the mojo that happens in the middle is a divine force. Sometimes folks reference that as a divine child energy. Folks, this is the trinity. This is the trinity. In going into other spaces to learn about sexuality, to heal, I found Christ. You guys hear that? By going into other spaces outside my religion to heal, I found Christ. And Christ became bigger, Christianity became smaller, love became universal, and suddenly I'm a child again. I'm a child learning about spirituality, and as sexuality becomes recontextualized to me, so does the nature of God, and so does the nature his, of, his, of his or her family as a diverse, um, eclectic, multi-unique, limitless people of God. Um, and, and that's how this has also helped me to reconcile with my own faith. I, I don't shame it. It now has a place as do other places. Yeah, and other faiths. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. You're, you're preaching, man. Amen. Did you raise it? Toss it back and forth. Woo. Um, yeah. Talk about, you said yabyum. It's an embrace where two people are embraced. And so in this experiment experience, you are wearing clothes. But there, and then there's the you're being led through some an exercise where you're focusing your energy. Um, yeah, why don't you talk about like like mechanically paint a picture for people who are like I don't know. Yeah, yeah, sounds like an ice cream flavor. Wow, you're really <laughs> you're really asking the good questions. Okay, so when I do this as an example, or when other people have done this to ex as an example, it's as if they're having an orgasm right there, but there is nothing physically happening. So another way to see it, it's like God is dropping the pleasure, boom, right there. And we've heard about these similar things happen in Scripture. It's called the Pentecost. When the Pentecost happens, it's the Holy Spirit drops in, boom, people start talking, whoa, whoa, whoa spiritual gifts start spreading all over the place, and folks don't know what to make of it. 
I would say what that experience to me was, was a spiritual con uh, experience. I didn't know how to contextualize it, so I started to film it. I became my teacher's apprentice. I started filming her workshops. I started being the, the person who gets blown open as an example, and I saw what happened to the room. And the footage that I collected showed a room full of 70 people on the ground, like <laughs> it looked like they were having exorcisms. Like, what is this? But do you know what it also looked like? It also looked like a Pentecostal service. It looked like a church service from a different denomination. I'm thinking, why does this look the same as this? Maybe because it's the same energy. Maybe it's because the erotic energy that we saw, that I saw in this tantra workshop, is the same erotic energy at work in this Pentecostal church. And if it's the same erotic work at the Pentecostal church, how much easier it would be to, to, for other denominations to soften to the other mysterious ways God expresses him slash herself, right? Um, so, and how it felt, um, I guess it, I guess one can say it felt orgiastic, but honestly, it felt like I was coming to Jesus again. And, um, you know, my, my body wasn't showing any signs of, you know, it wasn't like, you know, erect or anything like that. It's just like my heart is full. Heart feels full. Feels like Christmas. Feels like you're coming to Jesus. Um, and it's an ecstatic feeling. And if we can contextualize our most spiritual experiences with with God and Christ, if we can allow ourselves to enjoy the yumminess of that too, your worship may hit that other level, equivocal to the Pentecost. Why not? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> it's revival. I love you. It's revival. You. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, Nate. That's awesome. That's uh, way more exciting than what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> And let me ask, how much time does this whole space have for yeah. us? How, an hour? Oh. Okay. So you're in spiritual. Yes. Yes. Great, great, great. Well, I, I, I feel like that you actually helped me mention, like, two things. But the last thing I just want to mention is one of the things I learned um, is that um, when I ventured into eroticism with my camera, I thought, oh, my goodness, am I making porn for Jesus? Am I? Wh what am I doing here? Let's, let's be honest here. Like, what? And so I had to find out, are other, is there anyone else who did this before me? Like, am I the only one? So I went out on a search to find out if there were other people who were religious who were confronting sexuality with cameras. And I discovered um, a, a handful of people who are in their 80s. A handful of people who are in their 80s now. These are sex educators um, who come from educating um, from children, they come from educating children, or from public education, or even from from church. One is a Baptist minister, and I found that these group of eighty-year-olds were very active in the 1950s. They were making sex education films available to the public before pornography blew up into America, and these sex education films were blocked by other people within their denominations, and they tend to be the loudest and the fewest. But they blocked the efforts of these, of these denominations that wanted to put public sex education content out there. Folks, I'm talking about the Unitarians and the Methodists. <laughs> the Unitarians and Early. the Methodists in the 1950s and 60s were ahead of anyone else by making fearlessly erotic content for sex education. But they were halted, and what happens in the 60s and 70s? The porn industry explodes, boom, boom, and now we are educated by pornography.
Now our kids are educated by pornography as young as seven, especially with the devices that they have in their hands. And so where, and, and where is the church in this conversation? Um, I was so elated to discover that some of the first trailblazers, the, some of the first American trailblazers in the 1950s, early 60s, who were not afraid of eroticism was clergy. How badass is that? We do not hear that news. We don't not hear that story on the news on CNN or Fox. No, we don't, but it's true. And when we hear these things, how much more invigorated we are to bring that same messages into our churches and to continue on where these trailblazers have led off. Uh, yeah. I think it's time for that. Yeah, so um, a couple more things, and then we're going to flip the we're going to flip the mics around. And that is so on this side of purity culture, we've we've learned techniques and we know and ways of thinking theologically that readjust what masculinity is. Obviously, masculinity is not what we do with our genitals, but it includes what happens to her and among and with our genitals. So, masculinity is sexual, but it masculinity is not sex, right? So I wanted to differentiate that, but um, I have one. Oh, go ahead. I just have one last thing that kind of goes back to where we are now with how 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 can men embody this message now? Like, how can we be fearless about sexuality now? What what is the platform that men have to? Um, how you mentioned it before, like if if the myth used to be that um, women were the ones who held the boundaries. Where do men go? What are men doing now that shows yeah. the new masculinity post-purity? Right, right. Yeah. Right. And um, one is that, like, really in just, like, the last, you know, five or six, seven, eight, nine, ten years where a lot of men have, like, converted to feminism. Like, I don't know how else – there's a better way to say that. But, um, you know, my, my seminary education – when I went away to seminary, that was the first time I was, like, introduced to feminism. And it was, like, even th then it was, like, a mild form of feminism. But it was really refreshing to me because it gave me a new lens for a way to read scripture, a way to interpret my the life around me. And then w what, what has happened to us is, like, we have to, like, as, like, dumbass guys who are just bumbling around, we have to, like, implement practices in our lives so that it's it's, like, our masculinity is a practice. It's not necessarily like a set of beliefs. So it's like on our podcasts and in our daily lives, we try to platform as many women, as many uh, people of other gender identities and sexual orientations that are different from us. When we're in meetings, we seek to um, be quiet as much as we can. And when people of, uh, of other orientations and of a gender speak, to affirm what they've said and just shut up and let let not have to try to dominate. And our, of course, this is a bit ironic because we've like been talking nonstop since we sat down. <laughs> um, but it, I promise in 30 seconds I'm going to shut up. Um, okay. And that uh, and learning that sex is a spiritual practice. It's a playful practice. It's um, and it, it's not a scary practice. But but sex should not be a reward. Like that. I know that sounds sort of like duh on this side of things, but we re most men I, we have experienced in the United States view sex as a reward. Like we take out the trash, I've done the dishes, I reorganized the garage and I took a shower and I put my quarter into my wife and I'm gonna get intercourse in return, right? <laughs> now that is not how sex is supposed to work, but that is sort of what's running in the operating system in the back. So 
um, that sex is a gift, pleasure is a gift, and that gift. And, and, and coming from a theological framework, which is probably obvious to everyone in here, but we talk to groups where this is not obvious, and that is going back to Genesis, thinking about that the creation, creation was created good, and just because people make mistakes and make bad decisions doesn't mean that all of creation is suddenly bad, right? That uh, Christ is a partner to us, not a substitute for our own um, inner spirit and uh, ego. Anyway, so I'm going to shut up right now. Woo. You have better ideas than any of the things we just said. So we want to hear from you, and you all want to hear from you. So here's Ryan, zip, zip in the lip. Who, the has lip a, who has a comment, something that they've learned that they would like to share? I, and it could be a question for the whole group. Yeah. And please do it in the mic. Do it in the microphone. Yes. Well, talk. My name is Ben, by the way. Thanks for ben. Uh, hey ben. having this here for us. Um, you both talked about how your experiences in purity culture uh, held you back from experiencing sex. Um, I went to a Catholic college. I was not Catholic myself going in, but I noticed um, in some of my classmates um, a tendency that um, the repression that they felt around sex in their Catholic schools and their Catholic upbringings resulted in like not knowing how to regulate once they had freedom around it. So like it, it became like uh, just a, a, a uncontrollable situation where they were just going off the deep end with it. And um, so I saw it the other way there where the kind of purity or abstinence only messaging that they'd received resulted in kind of like this yep. rubber band kind of being let go. And yep. um, I don't know if, if you've also seen that in oh your yeah, journeys, but yeah, um, that's that a good point. Yeah. That's how I kind of experienced it from my end. Yeah. That repression. And we, we all know this, right? You can repress, 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 repress. It's a pressure cooker, right? It's going to escape. It can escape in a healthy way and will escape in unhealthy ways. And yeah, for a lot of people, those, you know, you always, you've put back on your youth minister hat and you'll be like those youth that like, leave the youth group or they leave the collegiate ministry group because like they've like be you know started having sex and drinking and being um but it's a va it's actually a valid expression you know a release valve of that repression yeah i i would say in 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 my experience um being married um it was helpful to be married it was helpful to have a relationship that that helps me see everyone else in a platonic level and still experience the erotic newness of everything on that platonic level. Um, and that already is overwhelming. Uh, and it took me uh, it, it took me about two years for the divorce process to, to happen and, and before I was like officially single again. Um, and even then I felt like um, uh, you know I was really panicked. You know, dating is a very pan I was it was a very uncomfortable thing I had to push myself into that I thought I wasn't prepared for. Um, so when I referenced my fear, my clinical fear, it was uh, it actually kept me safe because I did not feel safe being physical with with, with others, um, and and that helped contain me some. Um, but just throwing out something practical. Yeah. Who else? Deanna, thank you. I'm glad I wandered by and like got sucked in with the conversation. 
So um, I, I guess I wanted to say I also think sex is a very spiritual experience, and but I also think that like the mind has to be at a certain point to really appreciate the experience. So it's like purity's not right, and but then you don't want people to go out like bunny rabbits all over the place either. So it's like, how do you walk that line mm. of, of doing that? And how do you counsel youth to do that? Like, don't be afraid. Embrace it. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And then Kundalini is your next step. Oh, no, no. Ooh. We talked about, we talked. Yes. Kundalini. He's, yeah. um, Kundalini. that's the next workshop, right? Yeah. Kundalini with yeah. this guy. Or what? Yeah, the, the okay, there's before you do that, is he actually going to perform Kundalini? No, no, he's no. <laughs> when he got his camera out when we started this, I'm like, oh, <laughs> Kundalini is not cunnilingus, by the way. Those no, yeah. are different practices. Those are different practices. Yeah. Thank you for saying um, that. The short answer to that is yes, and what we teach is sex is an adult practice. So if you're ready to do things, other adult things, then, you know, it's like it's a practice for adults among adults and you know i mean that's a whole conversation like how to talk to youth about sex but yeah yeah there do there does need to be boundaries so that people can feel safe and when there needs to be consent and you know there's a whole laundry list of that now there's a I'm Roy, and I'm a filmmaker as well. Hey, Roy. Um, and uh, about 10 years ago, I made a documentary that nearly killed me about a, a televangelist that uh, worked miracles and worldwide attention. Uh, the energy that you described in your uh, tantric experience is, is, is that same energy in a revival. Mm -hmm. So, But it's like... Um, because this revival was so popular uh, and the energy from the preacher was so, you know, Kundalini in a sense, he fell into sexual sin and was condemned. And in, in since that time, he's fallen into sexual sin many a time. So I'm wondering if it's just a way that, like, the charismatic church can't really uh, control that en energy. Do doesn't really speak to it. It's just an observation. I have something to offer yeah. there. Um, in response to what you're saying, and also in response to what you're saying too, something that I've been learning is that, that if women are the one with the clitoris, women are the one with the wombs, I think we should be learning sexuality from women. And um, I think we have yet to see that on the world stage. And, um, and I do also agree that um, of of the what I've seen, just as there are charlatans in the in the Christian space, there are charlatans in the conscious. in the conscious tantra yeah. space, very much so. Yeah, and that that space is also suffocating from appropriate leadership and boundaries. And yeah. boundaries, yeah. agreed. Agreed. Over here. Come here. Oh, come on! You know, even he. I, I guess it's just a observation. Um, when you're, you're talking about the uh, revival, and one of the things that I've observed recently and, and, and have been trying to dial back, because I, I would like to experience those 
as well again. But the older I get, the more manipulative they appear to me to be. And it's pure, and, and, and that's the thing that I keep having this discussion with others is like, yeah, but we're just manipulating people. L we, we, we can't be doing that. So there has to be somewhere, it, it can't be all black and all can't be white, but that, that, that the, the manipulation factor seems high and very exposed because it's a raw edge nerve thing that I think that people can exploit incorrectly. And, and I, it's just an observation I've got. When he said that, it, it just triggered yeah. something in me with the, the whole manipulation piece. In this example, who's doing the manipulating and who's being manipulated? Well, in a revival situation oh, where you gotcha. where you would you know you preacher gets up there and starts crying and whatever and you know it it, it and you you know it's it's for theatrics it's in order to put people in a space but it, it's what space are we putting people in is this really a Holy Spirit moment or are we manipulating uh, and yeah. it, a, a fake Holy Spirit moment and that, that I think that's where the the challenge to me comes in in trying to create those spaces, safe spaces, how do you do it without being manipulated? I guess that's part of where yeah. I'm finally getting to the question, or if there isn't a question there, the, the point I'm making. How do, you, how do you get to that point of it being Holy Spirit-driven rather than manipulation or theatrics? Sure. Good point. I'll throw a whole other wrinkle into this. Uh, as ways that we start de deconstructing masculinity when it comes to uh, how we then uh, operate as fathers mm -hmm. or a parent uh, or I mean if you want to take uh, take gender binary language or just parenting sure. in general uh, there's the aspect of the masculinity you know a lot of us make jokes about you know oh I'm gonna have a daughter I'm gonna kill any guy that gets near her, that type of stuff when that's not the case uh, but then to say okay well I don't want to do that and you sort of have to be reconstructing your own identity of masculinity at, you know, while you're flying the plane and trying to help introduce and, and shape some concept of the world for this new human being who's coming into it, who you're trying to hopefully uh, birth into the world, uh, not having the same baggage you had. You'll give them a whole other side of baggage, of course. Sure. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's not a question of whether my kid's going to go to therapy or not. It's just what they're going to talk about. Right. Uh, and so... Yeah, I don't really have a question. I'm just, I just want to introduce that aspect uh, because it's not just refiguring out stuff for ourselves. It's also what we put out into the world, whether it is as leaders in ministries or uh, makers of films that people see or just people in homes bringing up new people into the world. Yep. Yeah, so I have a 13-year-old daughter and a 9-year-old son, so I very much resonate with that concern. And uh, we, we attend a, a very progressive church um, is open to talking about and anything and hosting any and having any kind of person in leadership so um, and yeah we 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 struggle with um, it it was so neat and clean when it was just like don't do it and here are the strategies to keep yourself from trying not to lust or touch somebody else's genitals you know that 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 was like a really nice clean structure to try to enforce and um, and we and in, in progressive communities you know we don't have a clean structure but you know I know owl is is a is a program that a lot of churches um, have done our whole lives um, and I know that um, in our ha in our home we talk about anything anywhere at any time and we don't make a big deal about anything 
unless it's we're celebrating something. So, um, but yeah, our, my kids will go to therapy for things that I didn't have to go to for, and it'll be my fault. I just uh, want to echo really quick one thing that we learned from one of our women uh, pastors who taught us something. Um, in one of our live podcasts, what she spoke about was um, how we were learning from the younger generation, that kids have a lot to teach us, and especially in the, r- in the world of shame. They do not have the same programming of shame than we did, and, and that is a wellspring of beautiful programming that, that we can learn from them, from their innocence. Um, and the last thing, that one of the things you mentioned before about how do we tell the difference between ma- manipulation, and that this is the same road that I think we all have to be on to stay safe and to keep our loved ones safe. And, and maybe a good direction there to start off our collective search is innocence. There is an innocence that folks younger than us have uh, that is pure that's harder to find from people who are more seasoned than us. Um, and maybe that can give us some direction. Hi, uh, Ben here again. I just wanted to try and connect two thoughts um, that I heard uh, from the group here. Um, I'm also a, a new dad. Um, my son's going to be only one year old next month. And so um, thinking about, yeah, like how do I, how can I be a sex positive father? Um, but how can I also talk about what sexual sin is? Mm-hmm. Um, and because you know, even thinking about what William Barber said last night, we have to name sin when, yeah. it, when it's there. And I think um, there is definite sexual sin when there's, um, you know, power abuses, when there are, sure. uh, when care and concern is not, you know, um, offered or, or when consent is not given, right? Those those kind of um, violations and, and transgressions have to be named and talked about openly as well. And I, it's, it's always just like a challenge. I feel like every conversation I have, I'm a campus minister as well, and every t- time we talk about sex, I have to like come up with new things to say because there isn't just the old answer I can go back mm-hmm. to. Every situation's mm-hmm. nuanced and new, and we have to find a way to like think about it through the ethic of care and concern and consent. Um, but it's never clear, and it's always challenging to to come back to that with a sex positive attitude, but also uphold a standard that um, you know makes sure everybody involved is is safe and experiencing the pleasure that sex can offer yeah yeah and i think um one of our mentors um tina Shermer sellers who's been to this event a lot many times in years past it's a great sex educator and she talks about having you know a hundred one minute conversations instead of planning one big hour and a half conversation and i think she talks about in reference to children, but I think it's true in adults and your kind of daily lives too. There can be just a moment, even among friends, where there's a little teachable moment where we kind of self-correct, you know, we correct each other or we have a kind of a funny, this is so funny, oh, look, here's a little l- mini lesson. And then go on, not make a big deal about it. It doesn't have to be like a whole workshop there on the side of the road, but we c- it's an ongoing conversation um, um, because the more w- the more we talk about our roles, our our feelings, and our impact of our behavior on other people's physical and emotional spiritual health, the more we talk about that, the more it just becomes conscious, and we're like, oh, I, y- y- we start living a more conscious life, and um, we may not have the exact rule, get the exact rule right or the behavior right, but we can get the relationship right. So, yeah, yeah. 
there are a couple things. If anyone else wanna say, wants to say anything, please say. Uh, there are some, how much time do we have? 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. There's some things that churches do right. And we'll say that like churches do provide a wonderful environment for people to communicate. That's one thing that we really do well. And so encouraging young boys in particular to be able to express themselves is, is really fantastic. I have a, 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 my son gets very anxious when he has to like speak in public or speak in class, but he talks all the time at church and it's just, and he gets affirmed for that and he's loved at church and, and it's a, it's a great experience for him. Um, and the other thing is uh, my generation, our generation, and maybe our dad's generation, we play with our kids, right? We talk to our kids, we play with our kids, we do projects with our kids. And we have to, you know, pat ourselves on the back a little bit for that because earlier generations, there was this sort of divide. Like the kids hung out with, and this is stereotypical, but it is a model. Women, children hung out with the women, right, until boys became old enough to hang out with the other men. And that's sort of like across a lot of cultures, right, even in, like, European cultures. So we d- that's something that we really do well. We need to encourage, you know, our our, our guy buddies to, to be playing with children. And um, – and I think and boys tend to be more physical or tend to be very physical and offering opportunities for for people who have who express sort of masculine energy in our congregations for them to do physical things, to be creative with their bodies, creative in building and constructing and doing all those kind of kind of stereotypical guy things, but to really be physical and not and on the other side, not have church be all cerebral all and only talking. So have you also been focusing on teaching the the girls about sovereignty over their body and respect for their own bodies and how to say no and focused on that? Yeah, we in the beginning of this podcast, when we started this conversation, we said we know purity culture is disproportionately impacted women. And it's largely on our podcast has been a conversation led by women and women teachers and women sex educators. But for this day, at this time, we happen to be talking about about guys. Yes. But yeah. yeah. So basically. Absolutely. So the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And we interview other women to say that to women. So that's how it looks like. And to us. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, we, yeah and we say it too. Um, and one thing also I wanted to mention about one of the things that were, you know, how what does masculinity look like in this side of purity? Um, what we're learning is that, um, you know, we talked about sin. You know, when does sin come up? And um, I definitely realize what sin is not. Sin is not pleasure. Yeah. And so many of us are still kind of operating that sin is pleasure when yeah. sin is actually a, a, a deception. It's the lie. And even incorporating that is a whole – it just screws with your mind. Your brain has to get, like, reload. Like, whoa, how, how, how often do we avoid doing things because they're pleasurable? Like, no one has to tell us don't do it. You're going to catch yourself. Just think about it today. What happens to you when, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't take a nap because I be should be doing this. So maybe I shouldn't have that hot dog because I shouldn't be doing this. We always, so many times, we, we, are, we, are, um, we are still teaching the old programming that pleasure is sin when that is actually the blessing and the command that God gave us to do in the Garden of Eden. Go and enjoy my Garden of Delights. Go enjoy pleasure. This is the original relationship with God, having pleasure. And when we separate sin from that truth, sin then becomes the lie. And when we start finding where that lie is, then we realize, oh, you know what? 
Sin is never this easy thing we can define once. It's something we have to integrate all of our faculties and all of our wisdom and all, like it all figures in again. Um, and it, it, is a wildly, it's a, it is a wild thing we have to relearn again from scratch with one another. So listening to your story, it made me wonder of, so as, as you're trying to help them understand and advance to it and understand it's a good thing, is like, should they be having, like, okay, if you can have through Tantra sex without any training whatsoever, then maybe you should think about the next step might be physical sex. Oh, that's a cool idea. That's a really cool idea. It's kind of like doing the imaginary version first before, like, the touchy version. Oh, there's always a lot of imagination first. Oh, there is. This is great. What a wonderful idea. That's fun. That's very exciting. Others, give each other some advice here. I think that gave some fathers some hope. (laughs) (laughs) Five minutes. Yeah. I I know that we, we live in a society that is very violent, where we have, you know, national leaders who provide a very toxic example of what it means to be a man. Um, and I, I, but I, I, and that it is what it is what it is. But I do think that people, people in progressive faith circles have a really wonderful opportunity to model uh, a type of masculinity that is, um, that, it's not necessarily the opposite of of that kind of masculinity, but offers a kind of a a, a kind of Christ-centered, loving, warm, and powerful, ener- energetic kind of masculinity that had kind that g- that g- the next word is not coming to me. That has that has a c- that is founded in mutual respect and the ability to initiate a relationship and have that relationship grow and not have that other person as a target for uh, an expression of our our power or the the object of or a location to place our genitals or our hands without consent and um, I and I think that in in our country in the United States right now. This this community, Juice community, churches represented here, and the people re- represented here are going to the people who are going to be able to teach and send a message of that kind of inclusive masculinity. Um, I, d- I think expecting politicians or TV personalities or actors on sh- TV shows, they're never going to do that, right? Because it, it, that doesn't make money and it doesn't get ratings, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think what Ryan just said is really, really important because we, we can see where we're absent, right? So if we look at the hashtag MeToo event, what we both see, what we've talked about this before in our podcast, what we are seeing is not like, oh, here's toxic masculinity or here's like the, the cries of, of women. What we're seeing is where men of Christ have not fully stepped in. When men of Christ don't fully step in, those spaces are not as safe. You guys hear that? When we're not stepping in the spaces where God's leading us, those spaces are not as safe. And so we have a certain responsibility as men to enter these spaces where we may not have been before so that those spaces can change because we are representing that godly love. Right? And so wherever we've seen hashtag me too, 
express, um, you know, the the wounds of our sisters and our mothers and our daughters. Um, whenever they express these wounds, um, what I personally see, and right now I've talked about this before, is also the spaces where men are are called to be in too, who embody the truth, not not the toxic masculinity we see, but the true divine masculinity that people are desperate to see and champion behind. And I'm sure there are many people who would love to celebrate those actions. And so it's a very exciting time, a very pivotal time for masculinity and this side of purity. And we are all being, we're all being models and examples to one another. You know, there's not one who is higher than another. It's we're all positioned and we're working together with this. Yeah. So starting with this podcast yeah. as well. Yeah. As always, thank you for listening to Touch Podcast. We have some great events coming up. Look for us in October, on October 8th, at the Monty in Durham, North Carolina, in cooperation with the Embodied Podcast and WUNC. Um, it's going to be a great event where we are going to be talking about purity culture again. And uh, check us out on Instagram and all the Facebooks and all the other social medias. Touch underscore cast is our handle. You can join us uh, by supporting us on Patreon. Send us an 